0: Well, it is indeed a great privilege to be with you this afternoon. We uh, pray often for uh, the works uh, in England. We don't know uh, a number of the people, but uh, amongst those that we pray for whom we know, we pray in general. But as I said this morning, now that I have had the privilege of being in two congregations here in the uh, East End, that we can also be praying for you, and I assure you that we shall as we pray for God's blessing upon his church uh, around the world. and Actually, in our corporate worship, a little church that we're starting, we have a, a policy that I t- also teach our students in our worship course, and that is over a about a six-week period, we pray around the world for different works, uh, missions, and people that we know. And we have a great privilege for a small congregation to have a lot of contacts. And so... We're going to be sure that we add the works here uh, as we get to Great Britain um, every few weeks. But thank you very much for the invitation, privilege of uh, being with you uh, today. Uh, pastors read Psalm 100, uh, so I will not at this point read it again, but pray. The whole psalm will be our text. Let's pray. Oh glorious, mighty God in heaven, We bless your holy name as we gather now in your presence, longing to hear a word from you to us through your word by the Holy Spirit. So we ask that um, through the Spirit's ministry, we would hear Christ, who is our prophet, priest, and king, speaking to us uh, in the preaching of his word. We ask this in his mighty name. Amen. Now, those of you who are hiding behind pillars need to move because I like to look at people's eyes, so that means you. (laughs) You didn't move far enough. (laughs) I was preaching at a church in Korea one time, and they do lots of different things in Korea. And this one was long and narrow and had pillars ever, I don't know, maybe 20 feet. And each pillar was a closed-circuit television screen. So nobody was looking at me when I was preaching. Everybody was looking at the uh, television screen. And even the pastor who was sitting up front was looking at me on television. It couldn't make eye contact. Eye contact's very important in preaching, so um, I think I've got you all now, so I can make sure I can speak to your conscience as well as your mind. Anyway, in order to use something properly, We have to use it in a way that's consistent with its nature. It's a mechanical law. I remember back about 1990 when uh, the computer companies started producing these very nice desktop computers. And you get your desktop computer and most of us don't read manuals, we just push buttons. And So we plug it in and we start pushing buttons and you push a button and out pops this cup holder. Really nifty. Now that's really nice that they would provide a cup holder. On this computer, just the right size for a coffee mug, a tea mug, or a soda can. Well, pretty soon the um, uh, customer service people were getting phone calls that the cup holder broke. What do you mean the cup holder? You know that thing that comes out on the side? Well, most of us didn't know a thing at that point about a CD or DVD. So they built in, knowing what was coming, uh, a CD DVD player. But when we used it, not according to its nature, we broke it. And that's true about things mechanical. It's true spiritually. I just began a course of Christ, covenant salvation, and many of the writers point out the fact that uh, every doctrine in the Bible has a relationship. And if you don't understand the doctrine and its relationships, you're bound to go astray. I'm thrilled to know you're going to have this conference on five points of Calvinism. Uh, and the integrity there, the wholeness of the gospel. What's particularly true with respect to worship, you don't have to travel around very much today to recognize that worship is really broken. And worship is broken for a number of reasons, but one of the primary reasons that worship is broken is the church is using worship for wrong things. The church has changed worship as a means of outreach, and in doing so has inalterably. Change the character of worship. Now, many of our young people in our churches see how we worship, and they might have friends that go to one of these churches that does a lot of different things, and they they're tempted to think that we do what we do because that's how we were raised, and you know maybe the other church is better. And it's very important in every generation we um, help you young people know. That we are worshiping the way we worship because of God's word. And that's what I want to uh, show you all this evening from Psalm 100. As we think about the the nature and purpose of worship. You'll see that it is uh, in fact a liturgical psalm. It's a song for giving thanksgiving to God. It also has a very important place in the Psalter. Uh, psalm 93 to Psalm 100, a little vignette of psalms, a collection, a cabinet, that I call the Messianic Kingdom Psalms. They're all about the prophecy and the reality of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, which we read particularly there in Psalm 96. Christ is coming, and from our perspective, he has come. But these psalms extol Christ, and we come now to the great climax of the coming of Christ to this call here with respect to Uh, the worship of God. What I want to show you tonight is that because Jehovah is a true and glorious God who made and redeemed us, we are to serve him joyfully in corporate worship. Because Jehovah is a true and glorious God who made us and redeemed us, we are to serve him joyfully in corporate worship. And we'll unpack the psalm under three headings. We're going to consider the duty of worship, the purpose of worship, and the grounds or basis of worship. Well, the whole psalm sets before us what I'm referring to as the duty of worship, for you will notice that we have here a series of commandments. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Serve the Lord. Come into his presence. Enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts of praise, Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Series of commandments that God by the Holy Spirit gives to us to worship God. There are those today, yes, even in the broader Reformed Church, that say, "Well, really, the New Testament says very little about corporate worship, and that really the primary focus of the New Testament is uh, life worship, and that's what's most important that we and and we recognize that the New Testament." takes these liturgical expressions and talks about Christian service. I guess one of the most famous is Romans 12, present your bodies, living sacrifices, holy, acceptable to God, the whole call to Christian service. And as we know from our shorter catechism, that our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And it's true that all of life for the Christian ought to be a consecration of ourselves to God in life, full life worship. But you'll notice that, as I've already said, that this psalm is a liturgical psalm. It's about more than life worship. It's particularly about what I'm going to refer to as corporate worship. And I can say that for a number of reasons. In the first place, you don't see this uh, in our Bibles. But uh, all these commandments are in the second person plural. Now, I'm from the southern part of the United States, and we have a way to deal with that, and it's the word y'all. Shortened form of you all. But anyway, all of these commandments are in the second person plural addressed to the people of God, not to us as individuals. And second, you will notice the place where this particular worship is being performed, and that is at the temple. So look at verse 4. Enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. Obviously, this is language, and it's throughout the Psalms. Directs our attention to the physical place of corporate worship. Um, of course, through that they would worship God in heaven. But was this was coming to God for corporate worship. And then we see it as well when, the, the, as I've already mentioned, liturgical acts or what are being uh, what God's commanding here, and, and that is we're to sing, we're to bless God, we're to thank Him as we come into His presence. So what we have here is not simply a call to life worship. We have here a call to what I'm going to refer to as corporate worship. The Church of Christ being assembled together in a particular place to do what we're doing this evening. In bringing to God this praise and thanksgiving and this weekly uh Corporate worship is the capstone of all Christian living. Now you'll notice as well, not only is the commandment plural, but the commandment is addressed to the whole world. And so we're told here that um, all the earth is to come and praise God. And I'm glad we read Psalm 96, which again shows that in this section of Psalms, which prophesies the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, All the nations are being called now to worship the king. So 96.1, sing to Jehovah, the Lord, a new song, all the earth. Or 97.1, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the many coastlands be glad. And in the Old Testament, the reference to coastlands was to the Gentiles. And so we see that now this commandment to worship God corporately is given to all mankind. Because all people are made in the image of the Lord God. And as servants of the Lord God made in his image have this responsibility to render to him praise and thanksgiving. Now, as a particularly important note here. If anyone is here tonight and you've got your nice little moral checklist. And you check it off to make yourself acceptable to God. And you've not committed the biggies, you know, you're not... Uh, an adulterer, or a homosexual, or you're not a murderer, you don't steal, and you know you're really a good neighbor. And after all, you're, at least sometimes, you're, you're coming to church, and you've patted yourself on the back, and you've excused yourself. You know what the most serious sin that any human being commits? The refusal to worship the triune God. The refusal to come to him through the Lord Jesus Christ through whom alone we can have access as we heard already in the service uh, to the Lord God. If you're trusting your own works tonight and you're refusing to honor God through the Lord Jesus Christ as he has called you then you're headed straight to hell. And that's what this commandment shows you because you are refusing God you're suppressing the knowledge of God as Paul says in Romans chapter 1. And if you find yourself under this indictment tonight, may the Holy Spirit speak to your conscience. And not let you try to squirm out of this, but understand that apart from Christ there's no salvation, apart from Christ there's no pardon for your refusal to worship God. And so I urge you to flee to the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom alone is salvation. But it's not just addressed to the world, is it? As I've already noted, it's addressed to the covenant people because we're instructed in verse 4 or verse 3 to know that Jehovah is our God. And in verse 4, to come into his presence at his holy temple. And so what we come to here in this funneling down of truth from Life worship to responsibility of all people to worship. It is the peculiar responsibility of the covenant people to worship God corporately in the Lord Jesus Christ, as our Savior tells us that uh, our God is a spirit and is seeking to worship a people in spirit and truth. Do you know that that's why God saved you, not to keep you from going to hell. God saved you for His glory to have a people for his own possession, who would worship him according to his word. And there's no more important thing that you ever do as a Christian than the corporate worship of God. This is a duty, but as it is with God, our duties are our privileges, aren't they? <laughs> a glorious privilege to worship uh, the triune God. and. Dear friends from both congregations, be so thankful that you're involved in churches that have evening as well as morning worship. I don't know what's happening in Britain, but in America there is an awful decline now of evening worship. People are very content to come um, to worship the Lord once a day. I hope that doesn't describe any of you here tonight. I know you're here tonight, but you might be here tonight for other reasons. Uh, Be committed in your church to worshiping the Lord God morning and evening. Isn't that tragic? And this is one of the reasons it's fallen aside, is that we can have a church of, of uh, 150 members, and you'll have 50 at evening worship and 15 at prayer meeting. And that's one of the reasons the church is in such a moribund condition today. So it is our duty, it's our privilege, but we're to come twice on the Lord's day uh, to worship the Lord God. That lays the foundation, and that's, that's the duty that we have uh, as God's covenant people to worship him corporately. But the middle part of this, and the most important part for our purpose tonight, is what is the purpose of this worship? And I can give you one sentence to summarize what the Holy Spirit is teaching here, and that is to serve God in his special presence. All right? You boys can get that. To serve God in his special presence. What well, we see in uh, verse Uh, Two, that we have this commandment that we are to serve the Lord with gladness. Now, in the Bible, both in the Greek and Hebrew, there are three primary words for worship. There's the the large word that actually has to give obeisance or to bow down. It's the word that's used, for example, in uh, the second commandment, to worship God and serve him. Uh, quoted in the, in the New Testament. So this has to do with the the attitude and the posture of those who uh, come into the presence of a holy God. And then the most narrow word, uh, which means to do acts, we could actually say liturgical acts, it's used of the work of the priests in the temple to, to minister to God. And it's the word that's used in Acts chapter 13 when uh, Paul and the others, they were ministering to the Lord in prayer and fasting in Antioch. And that's that word. And, and so these are the things that we do uh, in worship. Now, the word that ties them together is the, the verb that we have here in verse 2 serve. Now, it's a quite interesting word because it's the same word for the, servant, the service of a slave or a laborer. In other words, it says, come and labor in God's presence, come and serve Him. Uh, Yes, as a son and daughter, but come and serve him as a slave and as a servant. And it's a very important word in today's Christian culture because it helps us get rid of this notion that we need to do something to worship to make it more participatory. If you ever say that or think that, well, you simply have betrayed an ignorance of what you're supposed to be doing in worship. Your participation in worship doesn't matter whether or not you have your mouth open. It's a matter of the heart of what you're doing in the service. And that each of us, by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, in every element of worship, should be actively serving God by faith. In fact, the, um, the London Confession and the Westminster Confession say that preaching and the considerable listening to the word of God preached are elements of worship. Did you know that? So right now you're either worshiping well or you're not worshiping well, okay? If your mind's wandering, (laughs) you're not worshiping not well anyway. So we are to exercise faith in all the service of God and get rid of this notion that we've got to get more and more involved and this person's doing that thing and here's somebody else and if our mouths aren't open individually that we're not participating in worship. No, every prayer that's offered is to be a prayer that you're joining in with the one who leads in prayer. It's not just when you're singing. When scripture is read, you're to listen to it in faith and obedience. And when the word is preached, you're to listen to it with faith and obedience and meekness. And as the larger catechism says, readiness of mind. And so uh, this word teaches us that, that worship is participatory. You need to understand that. We need to train ourselves to worship, to work at worship. We need to train our children, to work at worship. So it's to serve God. But the second part of that sentence is to serve God where? Of course, we're to serve God everywhere. But in this psalm, it is in his special presence. In his special presence. Now, we, of course, get that when we uh, see that we're commanded in verse 4 to enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. As I've already mentioned, uh, the temple was the centerpiece of the worship of God's uh, Old Testament folk. Yes, they worshiped in the synagogues uh, weekly in all the cities and villages. And that worship was acceptable because of what was taking place in the temple every day, morning and evening, with the sacrifices and all the various things that were being done for God's people to uh, relate to him. But, of course, you... You remember from David's exile, when the temple was not yet in existence; it was just the tabernacle, and, and how he longed for the courts of God. He knew he could pray. He was praying in these psalms, but he, he, he was cut off from this special presence of God that in those times was only in the tabernacle temple complex. But, of course, the temple has been destroyed. And our temple now is what or who? Our temple is the Lord Jesus Christ. And our union with Him, we are living stones in that temple. Now, this is one of the remarkable mysteries of Scripture, friends. That because of union with Christ, we don't have to take a trip to Jerusalem or Greenville, South Carolina, every couple of times a year to be in the presence of God. No. When we gather corporately, because of the Spirit of Christ, we're entering into the courts of heaven. Because Paul says that we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies, right? And and the writer of the Hebrews tells us that uh, we've come now to this heavenly court. We're mingling with the, the souls of just men made perfect and holy angels. It's a mystery, but it's true. Uh, we, we're practicing levitation. We're in some way, and this is this is why in our worship, a call to worship is is so very important. It's an act of the keys. It's it's the the office bearer of of God by God's authority. We're being summoned into the courtroom of heaven before the throne of our glorious Triune God, manifested as as the God Man. You think about worship that way. Now we know that. When we pray in private and we have family prayers and worship, we're we're in God's presence. We're two or three are gathered, we're in God's presence. But the epitome, I want you to understand this, the epitome of being in God's special presence is in corporate worship. Corporate worship is the closest thing that you and I do next to being in heaven. You got that? It's the closest thing that you and I do next to being in heaven in heaven. We're in God's special presence. That speaks to us of how we should come. It speaks to us of how we should dress. I Go ahead. I'm leaving town, so I'll pick on you. I, you're much better here than, than they are in America. Okay? But you guys understand better because you've still got royalty. And I bet that if you any of you were to have an audience uh, with uh, King Charles Third. I hope he proves better than the other two King Charleses. But anyway, King Charles Third, you would not show up in casual wear, would you? Would you? I don't think so. I mean, I don't know a lot about royalty, but I've seen enough movies. No. Listen, you're coming. I want you to get this. You're coming into the throne room of heaven, into the presence of God. Start thinking about, you again, in our Western culture, posture and clothing increasingly mean nothing when in fact they're a very important part of who we are and what we uh, how we think about ourselves and about what we're doing so that's just a little challenge for you to to uh, to consider where you're sitting right now not just here it's also a great encouragement because many of us worship in in uh, not even places as nice as this in storefronts and apartments and and uh, Run down buildings. And yes, we, we want more. But the important thing is, regardless of our, our physical environment, we in are in heaven. And we need to to love being in the presence of God. That's why we also come in to him in holy attire, as we read in Psalm 96. All right. How do we serve God, then, in his special presence? Well, the Psalms teaches us three things. In the first place, as I've already alluded, we're going to bring to him... These liturgical acts, and a number of them are mentioned here. Of course, the psalm itself is for thanksgiving, but we're to to worship God with exuberance. That's the first thing you need to see in these acts. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. And then we are to come with gladness and with singing into his presence. There I skipped over verse 2. Come into his presence with singing. And as we read in Psalm 96, God actually wants us to sing to him. Um, And then we come with thanksgiving and with praise and blessing his name, which the word blessing his name kind of summarizes all that we do. And this is that particular Godward part of worship where the things, and this is why what we refer to as the regular principle of worship is so very important Uh, We don't know what pleases him, do do you? Unless he told you. We have to let him tell us that, uh, yes, this is what I want you to do. This is what I like. It doesn't matter whether I like it or not. Uh, It makes me feel good. No. Has God revealed to me, us, in his word, these are the things that we are to do to him in worship. So we're coming to bring to him the revealed acts of worship that he has told us that he delights in and he wants to receive from us from hearts of love and faith. Now a second part of serving God in his special presence is communion. Uh, look with me at verse 3 uh, or, or into verse 2. Come into his presence with thanksgiving. Verse 3, know that Jehovah, he's God. I remember the word know uh, in the Bible is a word of intimacy it's of love it's of, of um, close communion and fellowship and so what God is saying to us is that corporately and, and individually as we're part of the whole we, as we come into the throne room there is a hmm, love conversation taking place he says I am your God and you are my people he says i love you and you say back and i love you and uh, this is why we we try to organize our worship a bit as i teach worship in a, a dialogical fashion that god speaks and his people respond and uh, this love trist is going on in in worship as he shows us his his beauty and splendor and his love for us and We want to respond then with love and affection and repentance and sorrow as well. So communion takes place when we serve God in worship. And, of course, the highlight of that is when we get to come to the Lord's table and we call it communion because there we actually enter in the most intimate union with Christ our Savior. And then the third thing that we do in serving God in corporate worship, in fact, is something he does for us. And that is, as I mentioned this morning about the Sabbath, what we do corporately are the primary means of grace. And that's a very important concept for you to understand what I mean by means of grace. We get afraid of that because the Roman Catholics have perverted it. But our Savior is the one that has the treasury of grace, not any Roman Catholic idolatrous church. And our Savior then communicates to us out of that treasury of grace all that we need um, to know him to love him to die to sin to grow in grace godless conformity to his ministry now he does so in our private reading and prayer and memorization and meditation and in our families but the primary place that god meets with us in order to edify us is in corporate worship these are the chief means of grace. What we are doing tonight, and what you'll do when you come to the Lord's table, and as you have baptism, or as you should daily reflect on your baptism. These are the things that God's appointed to help us to grow in godliness and be a delightful Christian community as well as a delightful Christian. And so, this is what worship's all about. It is that we, uh, we come into God's presence on his day and serve him in this way with exuberant praise and adoration. To hear from him, to commune with him, and to grow in him. Well, to encourage us in this, the third thing the psalmist does then is he shows us the basis of this. We have the duty, we have the purpose, but what's the basis, what's the ground of this? Now, if you pay close attention to Psalm 100, you'll see it's actually two sections. Each section, um, verse 1 and 2 and verse 4, or verse 1 and 2 begin the first section, verse 4 the second, are commandments. But then each commandment is reinforced with a series of reasons. So we are to serve the Lord, come into his presence, and then why? know that Jehovah, he's God, it's he who made us, we're his, not we ourselves. And then a second section begins in verse 4. Another series of commandments. Enter his gates with thanksgiving, etc. And look at verse 5, 4. Now, pay attention when you read the Bible. You find the word for, that's because. <laughs> why? In fact, the old Psalter version of this actually says, I think, why here. Um, and it kind of jars a bit. But So what we have are grounds in verse 3 and... Five, for this duty fulfilling this purpose. And so I'm going to summarize the grounds under three headings. Um, we worship God because he is the, uh, the true God. We worship God, secondly, because he is the creator and redeemer. And we worship God, thirdly, because of the glory of his nature. So it begins that we, uh, as we come into his presence in verse 2, we're to recognize that Jehovah, he is God. It's a very simple statement. And yet again, uh, and I deliberately translate it Jehovah. When you, we should. Uh, that's, uh, we've lost the concept of what this word L-O-R-D means. And uh, it is God's personal name. It is his covenant name. But I, I want you to take the second name first, Jehovah, he is God. In other words, God, there, is the second primary name of God in the Bible. Jehovah's the first, I think, over 2,000 times. God, that word is used about maybe 600 times. But other false gods claim that last name, you see. Uh, that's, that's the surname, God. So all of these idols call themselves gods. And uh, stealing then from the glory of the true God so he says know that Jehovah he's God and as you remember boys and girls the story at Mount Horeb when uh, God appeared to Moses and it was a bush that was burning and not consumed and that God takes that bush to illustrate his name which is actually a verb I am who I am or I will be who I will be And we get these four Hebrew letters for Jehovah. Out of that, I am who I am. But think about the bush. Because what does fire need to burn? It must consume fuel. So a bush that's on fire, and the fire doesn't consume the bush, says that the fire is self-existent. It doesn't need fuel. And that begins to open the door that uh, Jehovah means I am who I am. He is independent, self-existent. He is simply himself. He has no beginning, thus he is eternal. He is immutable. He is infinite. And this word Jehovah then reminds us of this God. You see, this is his personal name. The others can claim to be God, but you see, Jehovah is God. Now the second name is important as well, God, because it tells us that God is a sovereign and powerful and mighty eternal creator and governor. And that as such, he is the self existing eternal God, but he is our God. He's your God. What did the angel tell Joseph? Name him Jesus, because Jehovah saves his people. He's the Savior. And thus he sent Moses down to Egypt, as he sent Christ Jesus to save us from our sins, and so the names of God are very important. We get two here, but this also alerts us to the fact that the names of God are very important. And the the old uh, reform writers uh, in the uh, toward the end of the uh, 16th century, the 17th century, often began their systematic theologies about God with his names, and the names of God are just very important to understand who he is, and they're precious. And I would. Encourage you to study them, but also, don't play what I call religious hopscotch. Do y'all play hopscotch over here? So you have these squares, and you got chalk, and you have to jump over squares and everything. That's how we read the Bible, isn't it? Well, I know all these names about God and 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 Jehovah and and Jesus, and so we read in a verse, and we just mentally just jump over it. But understand the Holy Spirit inspired the Bible. Every single name, title, is used of God is intimately related to whatever God is saying in that passage of Scripture. So to adopt an old uh, rock sign from my youth, slow down, you move too fast. You've got to make the moment last. No, stop. Read the names of God. Because God, by his names, is revealing to you much of the depth of his being. Now, the second thing is his uh, glorious work. And here we get two aspects of God's work. Actually, in the names, he's Elohim, he's God, he's the creator and the provider of providence, and he's Jehovah, the Savior. And so we read in verse 3, it is he who made us, and we're his. Or you can also read the Hebrew, it's he who made us, and not we ourselves. Uh, We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. the first place, he is our physical maker. And so as the psalmist reflects in Psalm 139, for example, he shaped us in the wombs of our mothers. He, he made each one of you personally, uh, designed you, and because of that, we all are indebted to him. He is the maker of all things, and he is our personal maker. But the focus, particularly here, then, is on Redeemer. And so he, he who made us, we are his people. That's covenant language. We are his people. And what a glorious concept the sheep of his pasture. He is the tender shepherd of, of whom we just sang, who watches over us. Is it interesting that Psalm 23 follows Psalm 22? Of course, you say yes, 22, 23, 24. No. What am I saying? What's Psalm 22 about? The suffering of the Savior and his exaltation. That's how he is your shepherd in Psalm 23. Pay attention in the Psalms. They also have a context. Just as I showed you here, Psalm 93 to 100 is a Context in the Psalter. So he is the creator and redeemer. He's your creator and redeemer, and that's why you should want to worship him. Because of who he is, revealed in his names, because of what he has done and does. And then the third is the revelation of his glory. And we know the glory of God through his names, but through his attributes. God's attributes are distinguishing characteristics. Now they're not different. He doesn't possess them separately. They're all part of a whole, like a beautiful diamond. But he reveals them to us in this manner so that we can get a glimpse of different ones because his beauty is just so profoundly unfolded. And so we have here four of God's attributes in Psalm 100 and verse 5. And we'll be back to another four because he's good. His steadfast love, and this is his keset, his covenant love, um, his faithfulness, and his eternity. So he's good. I don't know if you think much about the goodness of God. When Moses wanted to see the glory of God, God said, I will show you my goodness. Huh? My good, You know, I'm like God's glory is sovereignty or whatever. No. He says, my, my glory is my goodness. And then he defines goodness with some of the words that are here, but... Uh, I'm compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, and full of faithfulness and uh, loving kindness and faithfulness. That's the goodness of God. And you experience that every day as you walk with him. His tenderness, his compassion, his readiness to forgive your sins. So slow to, oh, I appreciate that one so much. He's so slow to anger, forbearing. And then this this kessed, this uh, uh, word translated in the ESV, steadfast love. I prefer uh, his loving kindness. It's his covenant love that he has as Jehovah for his special people. It's his love for you that's shown to you in Christ Jesus, and then his faithfulness. Um, there's an old uh, Negro spiritual. God is. Uh, How does that go? He's He's never late, but he's always on time. And his time isn't our time, necessarily. But he never breaks a promise or a threat. His word is true, certain, refined seven times like silver in a crucible. And then, of course, he's eternal. He has no beginning or end. He is, as we saw with Jehovah. And thus, he's unchangeable. And upholds us. Now, what's important here when we consider these grounds for worship is this is how you and I should approach worship. By preparation. We so often rush in late, slept in. We're expecting the service to tune our hearts when in fact we should have been communing with God, meditating on his names, his works, his attributes, and so that our hearts are stirred up. So preparation, this third point teaches us a great deal about preparation for worship. And worship is going to become much more glorious for you and for your brothers and sisters as we uh, prepare to come into his presence. And in, in my book on the, on the Lord's Day, I use the illustration of uh, a thoroughbred racehorse. If you've ever watched something like the Kentucky Derby, uh, oh, you have racehorses here too, but ours are faster. They don't jump over things (laughs) or chase foxes. No, you watch these thoroughbreds, and they're so hard sometimes to get into the starting gate. All they want to do is do what? They want to run. They just want to run. They've been bred to run. And that's how I I wish I did this. This is how we need to approach worship. I want to run. I want to run to God. I want to run into his, his presence. And it's preparation that will enable us to do that as we meditate on these things. And so, what I've tried to show you here, as I've said, is that because Jehovah is the true and glorious God who made us and redeemed us, that we serve him joyfully in corporate worship. Now, there's two very important implications as we realize how we've broken worship. And the first is, our worship is to be theocentric and not anthropocentric in other words God centered and not man centered isn't that clear from the psalm we're coming into the presence of God to give back to him that which he's revealed to us he wants us to do for his glory and honor now that doesn't mean that we ignore one another in fact we're told by Paul that we are to sing not just to God but to one another and we're together in the body of the saints that also doesn't mean that we will not be emotionally fulfilled in worship. We should want to be, but that's not what we should seek. We want to seek God. We want to seek God's glory. Because what happens, if you come seeking God's glory, he's going to fill you with himself. I use the illustration in a marriage. If in a marriage the, a man is seeking his emotional happiness and the wife is seeking hers, that marriage is doomed for disaster, isn't it? But if, if the man is seeking the well-being of his wife, and if she's seeking the well-being of her husband, uh, then they're going to have a great marriage, and they're going to be emotionally fulfilled as well. So you, you want to focus on God as you come into his presence, and, and not men. Not seeking primarily a jolt, uh, some kind of emotional satisfaction, but seeking God's glory. Now the second thing is that is emotional then to, uh, worship is to be covenantal and not evangelistic. And that's where we're really breaking it, where we're good motives. Uh, we want to reach the world with Christ, and so we change worship to make it appealing to them. Uh, and we have forgotten what we're all about. A few years ago, I was in Israel, and I was staying with a Christian Jewish family, and it happened to have been their son's birthday while I was there. And so I'm included in the birthday party, but that created a real problem for them. Because uh, they had Hebrew customs and they had Middle Eastern food and they had Hebrew birthday games and all this stuff. So what are we going to do with this Gentile pipa? Well, they could have said, uh, well, we, we better have an American birthday party. We better do things that he's comfortable with. Now, if they had done that, whose party would it have been? Their son's or mine? Been mine. No, they didn't do that. And we must not do that. We must not adjust our worship so that the world is comfortable. I often say that if an unconverted person comes through those doors and leaves here comfortable, you know who's not been present? God. That's what Paul shows in First Corinthians 14. They might leave angry. They might leave under conviction of sin. They might leave yearning for more. They might have been converted, but not neutral. No, Paul tells us, under the word of God, you either your heart's moved toward God or it's hardened. And so if they're leaving happy, then God has not been at work in your presence. No, our worship is about him. Now, what did that family do for me? They came alongside of me. They explained to me some of the strange food, the games they played, some of the songs that they sang. And so I was helped and what we have to do, is, you know, as Reformed people, our worship strange enough, even to other evangelicals. And I think what we often fail in doing now is, is helping the visitor know the playbook. Now, here's what we're doing here. Here's why. Come alongside them. If you invite them to church, help them ahead of time. We now have instructed uh, our greeters at church to have a bulletin. And when visitors come, first-time visitors take it. And say, now, Here's what we're doing. Here's why we're doing it. And so we do want to be cognizant of their presence, and we also want to lift up Christ in our worship because if we lift up Christ, then we want to see people saved. And you've heard me preach twice today, some of you, and I'm going to call people to Christ. It's not that we're not evangelistic in our preaching, but the service is not designed for evangelism. You see the difference? The service is to be covenantal, it's to be designed for God. So may God strengthen you and your two congregations, perhaps others who are here. May you young people understand that we're doing what we do because we're convinced that this is what God is calling us to do. And may God see fit to really reform worship in our day. Let us pray. O Holy One in Heaven, we bless you and we praise your name and thank you that you are our God. And that, Lord, you made us and take care of us and you are our shepherd and, but we thank you lord that you actually call us to worship you and accept our worship through christ we pray that you'll make us much more excited about worship much more engaged and uh, enthusiastic and spiritual minded and entering in and that you'll truly meet with us lord as we seek to meet you according to uh, your word and your will In order, if there are those here tonight who have not yet clothed with Christ, we ask that your Spirit, even now, would work in their consciences. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen.